they come into this world as persons, as full people, and you can do whatever you can to try to shape them and discipline them and nurture them and grow them, but it's also, they make their own choices, and it's it's humbling to see that. They may not accept everything that you give them, and there's a lot of releasing that has to take place, and birth is kind of a picture of what's going to be happening for the next <laughs> however many years your child is with you, it's a lot of letting go. We believe that not just babies are born, mothers are born too. We're your hosts, Lara, a labor and delivery nurse and aspiring midwife, and Melissa, a mother and doula. Welcome to Mother Birth, a space for thought-provoking and inspirational conversations about birth and the deep exploration of what it means to become a Welcome to the show today. Laura and I are here in Portland together, and we've got a special guest, Mary Grace Otis. Mary Grace is the host of another podcast, actually. She um, is the host of The Global Mom Show, which is a show just kind of helping moms think about living and raising their kids um, to be globally minded. And Mary Grace, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me today. So I have a podcast called The Global Mom Show, like you said, and I talk with moms around the world about what it means to live a global life wherever they are. So it doesn't always have to be traveling around the world or living as an expat, but it really means bringing resources into your home and connections with people from all over the world so that you're embracing diversity and helping promote understanding and awareness with your kids about other cultures and other parts of the world so that your kids are prepared to then go out and connect with those people themselves when they grow up around the world. And it's really been great for me to have the opportunity to talk with moms all over the place and get their perspectives because I used to travel a lot and live overseas and now I'm pretty stationary in one place and Mm -hmm. I still love connecting with people around the world. So that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Do you travel with your kids? We do. We have not traveled internationally yet. My kids are seven, five, and two. Mm. And we have, we travel kind of a lot in the U.S. for my husband's work and to see family and that sort of thing. So we are more in the road trip stage at this point. We have flown with them to different places, but we have not done any overseas trips at this point. And I actually, I wrote a post about that on my blog called something to the effect of if you're not traveling with your kids is that okay and my idea is that it is okay for a season you don't have to be always on the go to give your kids a global perspective you can do it right where you are so that's kind of what I focus on on the show well I I love that because I think many people have that question like if they you know if they love to travel before they had kids or you know really want their kids to be exposed to different cultures but they feel like gosh my kids are young and this sounds really really hard and I don't you know I'm just not that person that's gonna you know throw my kids in a back you know in a in a carrier and just go wherever the wind takes me you Mm -hmm. know are, are they kind of getting disconnected from from that that exposure and that experience. So I think that that is a really good reassurance. <laughs> we'll share that <laughs> post in the show notes too, so people can Great, kind of check yeah. that out. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your background. And, and I know you lived abroad for a few years and had a lot of different experiences. Is that kind of where this perspective and this uh, passion came from? 
Yeah, um, most of it started when I was a kid and really just being exposed to some people from different cultures and then getting to do some traveling a little bit in high school. And I went and lived over in Germany for a while and um, and through a foreign exchange program. And then mm-hmm. we had growing up in my home, we had probably four or five different foreign exchange students from Brazil and Russia and Germany and Spain. And so we had a lot of influences in our home that were happening. And my parents were really open to that. My dad spoke German and we, you know, we always knew kind of, he, he took some trips sometimes. So we were kind of always talking about that in our home, although we never traveled really internationally as a family, but it was just something that we are aware of. And mm-hmm. then when I went to college, I ended up studying abroad. And then after college, I ended up living abroad for several years, both in Germany and in India. Mm-hmm. And then my parents moved overseas to Albania and my other sister moved to Africa and which I haven't been to Africa yet, but I'm hoping mm. to get there sometime soon. She's in Tanzania. So, so really just connecting with people from different places. And then I studied in graduate school. I have a master's in intercultural service and leadership and management from the School for International Training in Brattleboro, Vermont. And there were people from all over the world there. And that's another place where I connected with people and, and really learned about other cultures and how people are doing things around the world. And it's just something that's really enriched my life. And now that I'm living in the States, I just want to make sure that I'm bringing that enrichment and enjoyment into my children's life as well. And that I'm staying connected with it as a mom, because we can't give our kids, you know, things that we're not being connected with or learning about Mm. as much. It's going to be, it's going to be hard for us. So But part of it is just because I want to stay connected with that. I think in the early years of motherhood, especially, it's easy to get caught up in everything that you have to do just to survive. You're really in survival mode of, you know, like just keeping everyone's diapered and fed and making sure people are sleeping and all of those kind of physical needs. And then I got to the point where my oldest son was about five. And I think at that point I had finally... um, or maybe he was six, I had finally stopped nursing and I had been pregnant or nursing for like five or six years, just Mm -hmm. straight. And I just got to the point where I was like, okay, now I'm like, I'm not sleep deprived anymore. I have a little more time and I can really focus on what I want to bring to my kids and not just like going with the flow, but really getting the books and resources and learning the language and those types of things that I want to bring my kids. And also I can start connecting with those moms that I've kind of been out of touch with. And so some of the early episodes of my podcast are just me calling old grad school friends and ch- yeah. and chatting with them and kind of reconnecting and hearing what they're doing and, and that kind of thing. And we've branched out since then to talk with other bloggers and authors and people, you know, from different places, but that's how it really started for me. So. No. And I think that that is such a powerful thing you said, you wanting to keep connecting to that part of you and from that place sharing it with your kids and Melissa and I both have a lot of interest in other cultures and have both lived in other cultures as well my my first undergraduate degree is in intercultural studies so I Mm -hmm. think once you have that you know it seems like your parents did the same for you they gave you kind of that exposure and then it obviously is something that took in your family (laughs) Mm -hmm. as you kind of have this global family now but I think it's a value that, like you're saying, it's hard to know how to apply that when you're in the season of young children. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. So. And you do have to work harder at it, you know, like you said, when you live in somewhere like the U.S., because 
you know, and certainly more pl- some places in the U.S. are more diverse than others. But you know, it's a it's a fairly homogenous society in many ways. And you know, my f- my friends that raise kids in Europe, like their kids, like they're they have two year olds and they speak two or three languages. Like that's just built into into those cultures and and how they do life. And and that's not necessarily how we do life here in the U.S. So it does take mm-hmm. an extra an extra degree of intentionality. Yeah, I live in a really rural community in northern Michigan, and so mm-hmm. it's it's a very homogenous community, and it's yeah. it's hard to find some of those opportunities that might be available in a bigger city. And I've realized that this is not just going to happen for my yeah. family. We're going to have to be really intentional. And I think just taking that step of making things intentional, the values that you want to pass on to your kids, that that was a really big shift for me in motherhood because I kind of just thought it was it was just going to happen naturally. The things that I love were going to be passed down. And in some cases, you really have to say, okay, we're, when we go to the library, I'm going to specifically get these books. And yeah. I'm going to specifically look for this type of video if we're going to watch videos or, you know, like maybe they're in another language or, or maybe they have multicultural characters or, you know, even s- foods and trying to um, incorporate some different foods so that my kid's palate is not completely just, you know, bland or mm-hmm. American spices or things like that. Trying to make sure I cook with different things so they have an awareness of that. Of course, it's not necessary to do all that, but it to me, it's fun. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it, those are your values. So you are you are sharing those and giving them the opportunity to they'll form their own set of values and they'll form their own way of looking at the world, but you're have you have you have this window of being able to really influence that. Right. And my kids are multicultural. Their dad is half Japanese and their grandmother is full Japanese. She's a first generation um born U.S. citizen, and she was actually in the internment camps when she was a little kid. So Mm. they have that heritage. Um, I'm Caucasian, and my family has Western European history. But, you know, even though my kids um, in this community, they're not really exposed to many Asian influences besides Mm -hmm. our family. That's something that I want them to have a connection to and be able to make those connections even more and understand their Japanese heritage and that, and not just get kind of subsumed into regular, you know, not regular, that's not even the word, but just, um, standard kind of American culture, white culture, basically. (laughs) Totally. That's, that's a great gift to be able to give them. Um, I'm curious before you had kids, when you, you know, knew that you were going to have kids in the future, how did you think about this aspect of parenting at that point? Did you already have an awareness that you really wanted to raise globally minded kids or is this something that kind of evolved after you had kids over time? Well, I mean, both my husband and I, have lived overseas. My husband grew up in Germany actually and mm-hmm. lived there till he was about 10 and then he's also spent a lot of time traveling over in Europe and Asia as well and so um both of us it was important and I think both of us kind of thought that we would travel more with our kids and that hasn't been the case yet but we're only 7 years into this so I'm mm-hmm. not crossing that out you know but um but I think it's it's important to both of us and one of the things that really my husband and I first, when we first started talking about things and connecting before when we were dating was just the fact that we don't necessarily feel, um, completely at home in American culture. Mm -hmm. And that was something that we had a similarity about. 
And so I think that came naturally. And that's something that is naturally um, an awareness in our, in our family and in our marriage that, you know, our kids are, we, we see things a little bit differently, like just even common things where people, you know, in some areas of America might think, oh, every kid has to have their own bedroom or, you know, it's normal for a kid to get a car when they're in high school and mm. this type of thing. I mean, that is not, I, I don't think that's normal at all, <laughs> actually, because I am like, I lived in India where there were like really, it was very densely populated mm -hmm. in a lot of areas that I was in. And every kid did not have their own bedroom. And they thought that was weird. I mean, when I was working yeah. over there as a single woman, they were like, you're going to sleep in the bedroom alone by yourself. You don't have any family or friends in the room with you. Aren't you scared every night? Like, Who are you and I was like, with? I've been, I've been sleeping by myself since I was 10 years old, you know, yeah. as, as an American kid growing up. Um, I did share a room with my siblings some, but then I had my own bedroom and it was just, you know, an awareness of my own privilege and my own excess, you know, of what is deemed normal instead yeah. of um, what is a luxury. And, right. but also they don't even see it as a luxury. It seems very disappointing that you would have to sleep by yourself. Right. So, you know, so now when, you know, we look at our home and think, okay, we've got three kids, we've got you know, two of them are sharing a bedroom right now and we'll probably move the other one in there. All three of them are going to be sharing that one bedroom with all of their toys and everything else. And it is tight. I mean, it's, it's not easy. And every time I think, oh gosh, I wish we had more space. I just think, okay, we can make this work, you right. know, and that's, that's a perspective that I, I kind of attribute to living overseas because I've seen a lot of different ways to live and ways that people experience life and they have different outcomes for people in mm -hmm. different situations that can increase your awareness of community and of other people and you know maybe not being as individualistic and those types of things so even something as small as that can have an effect on on your family but it's it's always been kind of a part of our a part of our family dynamic so yeah I think you know, and what you're, what you're saying is not that children should never have their own bedrooms or that that's going to, you know, be bad for kids or anything like that. But it really is that you've had this opportunity to see something completely different than what is standard in American culture. And you, you're able to see like the value and the benefit of it. And that like, there are so many different ways to do this. And I, I love that too. Just like the, that element of, of seeing like a, a way of, you know, sort of structuring a family in terms of like sleep arrangements and all those kinds of things that is a little bit more in some ways kid centered because it's, you know, it's, it's not, um, you know, we can, we often have, I think a perspective in America where we're trying quickly to get back to our like pre kid, you know, way of doing things. And mm -hmm. I think that sometimes we can rush that process, you know, it's, mm -hmm. we want our kids to sleep through the night we want, you know, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with wanting your kids to sleep through the night or your kids having their own room or whatever, but it's, it's refreshing to see this other component and see like these families are like, they're thriving. Right. And I'm certainly not saying you never want your kid to have their own room. I mean, I, I understand that that also has some benefits too of teaching yeah. kids to be independent and be on their own and giving people a private space where they can decompress. So, but I think because I have a different perspective, I can have that lens to say, okay, what do we really want? What am right. I, what does my kid need right now? Does right. he need to share a room with his siblings or does he need to be on his own? And it doesn't make me feel any like less, I don't know, like, 
well, gosh, my kids have to share a room now because we don't have a big enough house or something yeah. like that. That yeah, would be a perspective. As if you're depriving them. Yeah. As if it's a right. Yeah. Them I'm not depriving them. I'm making yeah. a choice based on yeah. what yeah. kind of outcomes I want and, right. and those kind of things. So yeah. anyway, that was a long roundabout answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but I think that speaks definitely to that, the difference between following your intuition versus doing things because of a comparison lifestyle. So, so much of parenting can be comparing what you think versus like something you've read or something you've seen with someone else or what the standard is. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about around the idea of like the American standard is, you know, you have two kids that means they each have their own bedroom and you obviously have like at least a three bedroom house and, you know, those kinds of things are kind of maybe like what would be on paper, but your intuition and is it, which is totally informed by who you are and the experiences you had in your life, like living in India and living in Germany and just being, seeing life in different ways is telling you this is what's best for your family. And I think we talk a lot about that on the show in the sense of yeah. there are things that you will follow that are, in, that are your intuition telling you. And there are things that your kids will then kind of have inside of them. I think that that is something that is really difficult to do. It's almost, you know, cross-culturally in your own culture. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be tempting to kind of pick one way or the other. Like for example, um, co-sleeping or something with your, with your baby or with your child. I mean, I have one child that we would let him sleep in our bed sometimes. And then it was like, he would, he couldn't sleep in our bed. He would not. It was just like completely like, I was like, Oh, maybe I should let him sleep. Maybe I shouldn't. Oh, I should have him sleeping through the night at six months. Oh, I should let him cry it out. Oh, I should let him be in our bed. Oh, he would sleep better if he was with us. Oh, I'm going to call. And it was just all the stress with my first son. And then I was going to say, was this your first? This was my first. Yes. And now with my third, I mean, he goes to bed in his own room and then in the middle of the night he comes and gets in our bed and he sleeps in our bed and it's fine and I'm not worried about it and I know that he's gonna eventually sleep through the night in his own bed because my other two sleep through the night in their own room and it's fine but I got so nervous like because on the one hand I wanted to do this worldly like global idea of oh co-sleeping it's so great and then on the other hand I was like but that's not going to work I just really need to be structured and let my kid you know have this disciplined schedule for sleeping so I was back and forth instead of just kind of creating my own way which is Mm -hmm. really a combination of both of those like yeah setting some guidelines and rules and then other things are not as important to me if my kid wants to get up in the middle of the night and come in my bed that's fine with me it might not be fine with you and so you take them back to their bed fine fine for you I mean everyone has to do their own their own what's best for their family yeah it really it really is this ability what you're talking about is this ability to say like what works for us like it doesn't matter that like you know this worked for my sister or my mom or my best friend, or this is like what I, you know, think is really ideal about, you know, Japanese culture or South American culture or whatever it is. It's like, this is what works for our family. And I think the other piece of that is that that is always changing. Like, I think that some people Mm -hmm. think that like you, you know, kind of what you were just getting at too, that like you kind of have to be all or nothing. Like we co-sleep, which means we, you know, we are like, we're co-sleeping till this kid is, you know, 18 years old or something it's like maybe you co-sleep for a few months and then it doesn't work anymore or maybe you know maybe you have a season where your kids do sleep in their own room but then they kind of need for whatever reason they're going through something developmentally where they need more reassurance and they need to be nearer to you or you know like it's just always changing and I think that we get really caught up in like no this is how we do it like this is 
this is what worked. And it's the question is, what is working? You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So we'd, we'd love to hear a little bit about your transition to motherhood. I know you have three. They're all boys, right? Yes, they're all boys. Yeah. So um, if you want to share a little bit about your birth experiences and your postpartum transitions, we'd love to share that, too, with our listeners. Well, with my first son, um, I was really somehow I was very hyper about it being a very natural birth. And so Mm -hmm. I had read a lot and heard a lot about hospitals and how they were, you know, forcing people to do medication all the time and not very natural and things like that. And I just was like, this is not happening to me. I am going to be in charge of my birth and I'm going to be incredibly natural. I'm not going to have any medication. And I was so set on it. But um, but my hospital was great. I mean, the, the the nurses are totally supportive and it's like in a beautiful spot that overlooks Lake Michigan. So the hospital rooms are just like, you're just looking out at the lake. It's beautiful. It's very small. So there's like four people in the whole birthing area. So you have plenty of time to labor at your own, you know, pace. And yeah. my doctor was not pushing anything on me. I mean, they were just all like, whatever you want to do, that's great. You know, so it was really, you know, I was kind of set up for all this. I have to do it this way. And then they were just very, very accommodating. And I did do a lot of reading before that birth. I read um, a book called Childbirth Wisdom that is really Mm -hmm. great and talking about different stories about around the world, how people give birth and some of the different understanding of pain versus not having pain and some of the traditions. And that was really eye-opening. And then I also read, um, I think it's Birthing from Within Mm -hmm. and worked through some of those exercises and some of the meditations and things like that. So I was really prepared, I would say for a long labor, which I had, it was about, uh, 12 or 13 hours, like, um, probably a little bit longer than that, but that's what was kind of really labor. And then I pushed for about two hours. So it was a pretty typical development of, of labor and, um, but it was really hard (laughs) and I don't think I was prepared for, I think I was prepared for everything up until the pushing. And then I don't think I realized that pushing was so hard and, that it would just, it was so exhausting after having been in labor for so many hours. You know, I was just, I, I didn't imagine that it would be so challenging and it really was. And it was just really like, it seemed long. And, um, and then I ended up, um, getting like a, a small episiotomy during that. And I realized that I felt like, I felt like a failure mm-hmm. for getting an episiotomy because wow. I had like, I was, my doctor said, I can cut you if you want, you know, like we can go ahead and do this now. And I was like, okay. And I, I just, but I felt like I had done something wrong. Like I hadn't done the full natural birth experience. And then later I was, she was like, no, you did great. Like, and I was like, I did do good. (laughs) But for some reason I had it in my mind that like anything outside of this typical natural birth was like, was wrong. And I think Mm -hmm. that's just, that's an unhealthy perspective and it's really can be so discouraging for mothers just to think that you know if you do anything to you know bring yourself any kind of relief or anything that is beneficial for the baby even that it's somehow a disappointment or something like that so um and I ended up um with my second son I actually um my water broke and then I was my water was broken for like 24 hours 
And so they went ahead and had to put me on, like they gave me a tiny little bit of Pitocin to get me started in labor. And it took four or five hours for that to actually start. Mm. Um, so that was a completely different experience. And, but then with him, it was like probably six hours, I think of labor. So I kind of cut it in half with him and I did have, I had stayed all or some kind of drug for like once, which it lasts like 45 minutes. And basically you're just a little bit zoned out while that happens. But, um, it was pretty intense. And during that one, I was like, I want an epidural I'm done. And they were like, I don't think you should, because you're pretty much like ready. So (laughs) I went done. (laughs) Well, I went actually, I was only like, um, two centimeters and within the next 45 minutes, I had a baby. Wow. So it was crazy. I mean, basically, I went from from three to complete in like, yeah, in like 40 minutes or something. And really... so, and they were having trouble find, like with um, the heartbeat and the breathing. And I was kind of sitting up in the bed, like on all fours. And um, which was helping me to feel better. But so my doctor was like, okay, the baby doesn't like that. The baby doesn't like that. Let's roll over. Let's try something new. So I rolled over and then she was like, I'll check you. And then she was like, she checked me and she was like, you're eight, you're nine. Are you ready to push? And I was like, okay. And I pushed two times and he was out. I mean, it was, it was crazy. So that was like a, just a completely different, different experience. And, um, and then with my first son, he didn't nurse right away. And he, he didn't latch on right away. And then with my second son, he latched on and he nursed for like hours. I mean, he was just like right there, which Mm -hmm. was like indicative of his personality because he nursed for two years and he just never wanted to stop. And he was just always very cuddly. And my other son, the first one was just very, what he was kind of colicky and kind of just super alert and always looking around. And he's very, um, enthusiastic and energetic about everything and that's kind of how he started his life so I heard someone say one time like you can tell the personality of your child within the first five minutes of them being born and (laughs) in some ways that's been true in in my life so that was my second one and um you know there with that one there was kind of the the point of okay you know you can wait longer if you want to keep going, but they really don't like you to go further than 24 hours of your water being broken. And mm-hmm. I was just like, okay, we'll just do some Pitocin. I was, I was much more laid back about it and much more willing to say, you know, okay, we're just going to go with this and we're just going to let it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So between, you know, you mentioned feeling the sense of failure or regret about getting the episiotomy, which is an experience that you share with so many women who feel those kinds of emotions about, you know, any kind of intervention or, or deviation from their plan. Um, so, you know, you felt that during your first birth and then you felt more free to, to kind of go with the flow on your second. What do you feel changed between those two? Like, was there some work you did to process that experience in, in your first birth or did was it just kind of a matter of time and just kind of how people, how we just relax more as we kind of get older? What, what, what was that like for you? I think it was just relaxing more and also just realizing like, okay, I, I can't control the fact that my water just broke. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. I can't like go back and put it back in and make it stop. It's not, it's not my fault. It's, it's not, it just, it happened. And Mm -hmm. it's not something that I'm a failure because of that or, or anything. It's like, I just have to 
you have to take your body as it comes. And you're not always responsible for, for every single thing your body does. It's working. And I, the day before I had been, he was a week early. I had been walking around in 95 degree heat, pushing the stroller. And I was like, I know I'm going to go into labor tomorrow. I know it. <laughs> and I, and I did <laughs> just, but it was, it was different, but still, I mean, I felt like I, I got to walk around a lot during that, during that labor. I was walking up and down the hallway for, you know, probably an hour or two during that time. I would sit in chairs, I would move, um, I had my music that I had wanted with the other birth and with this birth. I mean, I used dancing a lot in my labor. Mm-hmm. So moving around, standing up, sitting down, changing positions, the birth ball. I did a lot of, um, I don't know, just like dancing to music that was restful and peaceful to me. And that helped me really move through a lot. And so I did that still with my second one. It wasn't like it was a completely medicalized birth. It, it felt very natural to me. And when I look yeah. back on it, I think, well, I had three natural births. That's how I think of it. Even though they did give me some Pitocin to start, it, I just, I, I look back on it and I, I feel like it's just kind of, it happened naturally. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just kind of how I, I processed it. Um, well, and there's, and there's kind of some, I feel like there's movement in that conversation these days and Laura can speak more to this as well, but I feel like there's a lot of movement around the way we use those words because mm-hmm. when, when we use the word natural birth, I think that that can be such a, an exclusionary term. And, and like you just said, I love how you just said that, like, I feel like I had a natural birth. And at the same time, it's like, it's a shame that you have to even use the words, I feel like I had a natural birth, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's like to have this line in the sand between like, you know, it's like, I always, I always use the term like forest birth, like, you know, it's as if you had a forest birth or you had a C-section and there's nothing in between, mm-hmm. you know, like, and it's just not like that for most women. And, and it's not also this, this list of like, okay, well, if you chose any single intervention, whether it was for your comfort and relief or because of something, you know, that the baby needed, um, you know, suddenly now you're like moved out of this category of natural birth and like you, you know, you failed in some way. And that's just, it's just really unfortunate that that's the way we talk about it, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think my biggest, you know, bias against that or is the badge of honor culture that comes with birth and being even being mm. a mom. I mean, it transitions into early motherhood where it's like, oh, well, if you didn't do it 100% like this, then you don't get that badge of honor. Yeah. And you don't get, you know, you don't get to feel like you, you, and I think, you know, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, the spirit of like, sometimes when you do a lot of natural, you know, childbirth or normal physiological birth resources, like you look through those resources and do the study, they demonize interventions, you know? Mm-hmm. And so then you kind of have that going into it. Like, you know, like you had mentioned in your first birth, like having a, an episiotomy is like, oh, that's the worst thing that could happen, you know? Like, you know, right. And so you do it, you do have to then deal with that trauma of like, well, this happened and, you know, I had prepared for this and I had prepared that I would not do that. And I had prepared that that's not how this is going to go. Then it happens. And then you're like, well, what do I do now? And I see this a lot with moms who end up with a cesarean birth, especially because you have spent so much time preparing for a different outcome that when that outcome comes, you have no skills to deal with it, to deal with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whatever that is, you know, whether it's needing Pitocin augmentation, having a cesarean, having, you know, whatever that intervention is, you know, if you're transferring from home to then having a hospital birth and it's very, it sets you up for failure. It's, you know, I think, like I said, those badges of honor carry through to like early motherhood. Are you breastfeeding? Oh, you're not breastfeeding. And I always think of this story of a dear friend of mine who was breastfeeding her son and 
needed the pediatrician was recommending that she do formula supplementation and she was so devastated sitting in her car crying outside of a target because she was about to buy formula and in her mind that was the worst possible thing that could be happening in her life Mm -hmm. and it's just any time where you're feeling that about your own body your own baby and your own journey is you know if we've misstepped somehow in our culture and and our community yeah, I have a friend yeah. that said at one point, she's like, you know, the opposite of breastfeeding is not giving your child formula. The opposite of that is not feeding your child. Like right. both of those are nurturing your child. And that's what you yeah. want to do as a mom is nurture them and feed them and provide for their physical needs. And so the opposite of that is just starving your child, which right. you're not doing. And I don't know. That was kind of freeing for me because I also had that paranoia. Like I can't let my kids ever have formula or it'll ruin their whole digestive system and everything yeah. else. So that yeah. was, it was less freeing. The The breastfeeding process was wonderful, but it was also, there was, I was really tied to my baby and I could never um, kind of let them go. I I, yeah. I was very connected all the time. And that's just it's a very attachment parenting style, but um, when you have three kids in a row in four years, it it can become very, um, very exhausting demanding. and demanding. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So my third son um, was a little bit different because I um, I felt great. I had a great pregnancy with all three of them. I felt pretty good, and I always got a little bit of a like some kind of sickness at the end, a cold, and this my third one was born in January. And so right around the holidays, like, um, mid December or so I got a horrible cough and it just kept developing and developing and became worse and worse. And, um, about like maybe two weeks before my due date, I coughed and I heard a pop in my back and, um, I wasn't sure what had happened, but I couldn't move anymore and I couldn't walk. Um, and it was like I had thrown my back out and I, I don't know if it was a muscle spasm at that point or, or what, but so basically I had this horrible cough, which was, um, just really like a cold that was totally debilitating. And then I, I couldn't like move and it was extremely, we live in Michigan. So it was like, there was tons of snow on the ground and I had two other kids and it was just really challenging. And also by the time I, you know, having my third kid came around, I had had no time to prepare for labor, no time to think about it, Mm -hmm. no time to even do any kind of meditation exercises or, you know, anything like that. I was just like, I can't even believe I'm having a baby in three weeks and two weeks. This is crazy. I'm not ready for this. And, um, I, I have a friend who had completed her doula certification and she had been, she wasn't a doula when I had my first two kids, but by the time I had my third one, she was. And so I had her over one, one Saturday and I was like, Oh my gosh, can you, can you help me get mentally like from point A to point B? Cause I, I want to have this baby. I need to, because I'm in so much pain now. I have to have this baby soon. I cannot continue like this. Mm. And I, I really avoided like getting an x-ray or, doing, you know, getting a, ch- a culture, anything like that. Cause I didn't want to go on antibiotics, which is probably the wrong decision because, um, it turned out that I had pneumonia and mm-hmm. I was probably putting my baby at risk more by not mm-hmm. getting antibiotic because I could have gotten sepsis. But anyway, so 
I had this awesome friend doula who basically in, you know, in one evening got me mentally from, I can't do this to, okay, I'm ready. Um, and basically we kind of went through the process of like, you know, the baby is going to come into the world that I currently live in. It's not going to come into like a perfect world where all the baby clothes are folded in the nursery is great and my other kids rooms are perfect and picked up and I have the freezer completely stocked and mm-hmm. um, everything is orderly that might happen with your first kid but by your third kid it probably is not going to <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's just you your life gets more and more crazy and now I was sick and I was having this back pain and I couldn't do it all and I just but I wanted to have everything like kind of in order before I brought this baby home and she was like the baby's going to be a part of your family and they are going to just fit in with you where you are and you don't have to create this perfect world for the baby because mm-hmm. in another couple of weeks, they're, you know, their whole life, they're going to live with you in the world that you live in and exist in and it's not going to be this perfect place. And so just incorporate them into your life. And I was like, okay, I can do that. I can do that. And so basically, um, I, my parents were coming in on Wednesday, I think, or Tuesday night or something. So I got myself together. I was like, okay, I'm going to have this baby. And I was, I had contractions for like four or five days, like back contractions without anything happening. It was just kind of all the time, just like, this is so annoying. I'm really ready for this to progress to something, but it didn't. And then that Tuesday night, my parents got in at midnight and I, um, made like a batch of like tons of pancakes to freeze and I actually was doing some cooking it was like I got in my groove and um I was telling my mom like okay mom here's the stuff for the kids for my other two kids here's their food this is where they need to be taken this is the carpool schedule and da 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 my and my due date was not for another week and she said you sound like you're gonna have a baby and I was like I am having this baby tomorrow I am not (laughs) we're not doing this anymore and so the next morning um I got up and I was having stronger contractions and my doula came over and did some acupuncture points on me and I started having more contractions and by the afternoon I was in labor and um, which is really funny because my husband got sick and he was laying in bed all morning and he was asking me like can you get me some soup and can you like rub my back and I was like honey I think I'm in labor he's like you've been saying that for a couple days now like I don't are you really serious like are you really gonna have the baby and he's like I don't feel good (laughs) and I was like honey this is happening like I can't do all this for you I was like I and I said to him I said what percentage are you going to be able to be available to me today and he's like maybe 50 like and I was like okay wrong answer I was like so I called my doula <laughs> yeah exactly I was like I called my doula and I was like okay my husband is not in this right now he's completely not feeling well he's laying in bed and I need you to come over here right now so <laughs> she did and we both you know so her and my husband were there and um really for that labor, it was about four hours and they were get, you know, giving me back rubs and I was coughing so much that I labored a lot in the shower. So I labored in a hot shower for quite a bit and that really helped with my, my coughing and everything. And then at some point my contractions were like five minutes apart and then they were like maybe 
two or three minutes apart. And we started saying to my, with my doula, we're like, okay, I think, I think we need to start getting ready to go to the hospital at this point. It seems like probably that's a good idea. And then all of a sudden my contractions were like 30 seconds apart. And it was like, they were just on top of each other over and over and over. And I was basically like in like transition, like the whole time we were going up the stairs, trying to get in the car, um, going, you know, walking through the hospital and going down to the labor and delivery area. And my husband was parking. I was having contractions in the elevator. I was having contractions down the hallway. I, it was, I was having contractions like every 30 seconds all the way till I got to the room. And my doula who knows the doctor really well was like, or the doctor wasn't even there yet. The nurses were there. They were scurrying around like crazy. And I was just like, I was, it was hilarious because I was like, please tell me I'm not going to have to push this baby out for two hours. Cause I hadn't had any, you know, any drugs yet, which I had had with my second one. And I was worried that I was going to have to do two hours of pushing again, like I had mm-hmm. with my first. And, and so they were like, no, 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 you're ready to go. And within 22 minutes, I had delivered the baby. That's how long basically it took them for to get the bed ready for me to like yeah, get in. Like, don't push. Don't yeah. They're push, like, and I was like, push. so I was standing there with my arm on the bed and the doctor barely made it. And basically, you know, it was like my water broke and then the baby came out in uh, two pushes again and it was over. It was everyone, everyone, all the nurses were freaking out. I was like, praise the Lord that I don't have to push anymore. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, It was, it was pretty funny, but then I was coughing and basically my nurse, um, the next morning she was like, you are not breathing well. Like what is going on? And so she sent me up to get an x-ray, I got an x-ray and they realized I had a broken rib. So yes, I had a broken rib for like a week and a half or two weeks of my last, of my last pregnancy. And I had pneumonia. So they did a culture. I had pneumonia. So it was like, I was like, well, no wonder I was in so much pain. No wonder this was not very fun. So it was funny because my doctor was like, because my doctor came in and I was like, I really think I'm fine. I don't think I have pneumonia. I don't think, you know, I'm fine. I'll be fine now that I'm not pregnant anymore. I had the baby. She's like, oh, really? Yeah, because you have pneumonia and you have a cracked rib. And I was like, okay, maybe. That just shows how strong women are. That's right. I mean, and the power of, like you said, that third baby where you're like, I have a lot of things going on right now. So including pneumonia, I I can't even realize I have pneumonia. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, I, I knew something was wrong, but, and also the power of a doula and having a woman support you because she was able to tell me like, you can do this, you can make it. And I mean, at that point, I think if I would have gone in you know, earlier, I think they would have been like, you have a broken rib and we're just giving you epidural right now because you can't, you can't do this. And I, I didn't want that. And so I stayed home as long as I possibly could. And I just pushed through it and it ended up being quicker and faster than if I would have gone and gotten the, gotten the epidural. So, you know, I don't know if that was the best decision, but for me, I was just so thankful and so grateful to not be pregnant anymore so that I could yeah. actually get healthy. I was like, something's got to got to give here. I've either got to, you know, get have this baby or s- stop having pneumonia. Like one of those things has to quit. Yeah. So it took me several months to get over that broken rib. And that was really hard because lifting the baby and then having pneumonia when you have a baby. I mean, I... I did take the antibiotics after that, but mm-hmm. anyway, so that was my third one and that was kind of crazy. And having my husband, like he fell asleep like 30 minutes after the baby was 
Well, I was I was about to say, thankfully, your labor was so short, so he could just phone that one in. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was he was helpful he was and sick, he was there yeah. and yeah. and everything. But um, but when it was over, he like, he, you know, he, he was he crashed on yeah. the bed next to me. And I was, of course, I don't know if you've had this experience after you have a baby, but I just I get so um, you have so much adrenaline going through your body. Yeah. You can't sleep like all night oh, long. No. I was just like, yeah. oh, my God, you're, you're replaying everything and your mind is racing and you can't yeah. really just, you know, fall asleep. <laughs> so definitely. Anyway, did you that's have, did you have stories. a doula with all of your did you have a doula with? all? No, of your I didn't. No, my husband was very involved. Um with the first one, especially, we did some childbirth classes together, and then I just basically clung to him the whole time. And it was funny because at our childbirth class, I saw this video of someone saying like "one, two, breathe, one, two, breathe" or something like that. I was like, "That is the stupidest thing. I will never do that. That is so dumb." And then when I was in labor, I was like, "Say the one, two, breathe. Say it, say it." And that's what he did for like five hours. <laughs> so I, you know, you never know what you're really going to need, and that's just you have to be open to what is necessary so definitely that's yeah that's perfect um so what what made you decide to have a doula the third time really just the fact that she was available there wasn't one available like I said we live in a really rural community and until the last couple of years there haven't really been any practicing doulas and it's something that hasn't been involved with our hospital so now there is actually a small collective of doulas and birth photographers and breastfeeding coaches and that sort of thing that um, it's called life roots collective and my friend is one of the doulas and so she I, I just knew that I needed some more support and I knew that because I hadn't had the time myself to mentally prepare for this birth for the third one and that my husband and I had not really gotten on the same page about it for several months like we had with the first one I just knew it was going to be necessary I wish I would have had it for all three but yeah. I'm thankful that I had it for my third and I think people who haven't ever had one before and then they have another child they you might think oh I don't need one because I've already done this twice or whatever but for me like because mentally I had so many other things going on and I couldn't really focus she really helped me to be able to focus yeah. on what needed to be done so right well, and I think with having babies, like even if you've had several babies, it's not like it gets easy. Like, right. yes, you may have more of a perspective or, you know, idea of like what it's going to be like for you or how you may cope or, you know, some of those things. But it's not like you're like, yeah, this is easy for me now. <laughs> right. Know? It's. I think that 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 support is always beneficial, even if you even if you like, you know, some women also they, they labor really well, like they're you know, they're great at coping and they have, you know, relatively progressive, I, I don't want to use the word easy, but, you know, just kind of their births go, go well and mm -hmm. they still, they still need support too. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I always think about, um, a mom I took care of who's had, I think it was her sixth baby. And so we tend to kind of, you know, she's an expert, right? <laughs> yeah. Most people don't have that much experience birthing um, but she said something that I've thought of and it sticks with me if it's someone's first baby or sixth baby or fifth baby she said a baby still has to come out of my body mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's just so much in that because it's like even if you come in the hospital and you're eight centimeters or even if you your birth is only 20 minutes long or you know you hear all these extremes or like my birth was 72 hours long it's like in the end it's kind of back to that badge thing it's like a baby still comes out of your body and the only mm -hmm. badge you get with that is mother. That's, yeah. you know, it's like whatever that story entails. So I think that 
th- that's such a good way of approaching it is understanding like every single all of your births were very different and all of your right. births you needed different support and you had different things going on in your life just like you said your third baby was coming into a third kid home it looks right. totally different than a first kid home sometimes right and I would just add to that I mean yeah a baby has to come out of your body for that particular th- instance but also for people who are adopting or fostering children mm-hmm. as well, I mean, there is a huge transformation process that you have to go through mentally and emotionally and physically to get prepared for that. And so the whole badge yes. of honor thing, yep. whether you are, you know, naturally birth, become a mother or whether you adopt or whatever, I mean, all of it takes a huge amount of emotional and mental resources that that don't need to be compared <laughs> A hundred percent. Yeah. Definitely. I like the way Laura just put that, like the only badge of honor is mother. And like you said, like whether you've adopted or are fostering or whether you had a cesarean or, you know, the forest birth, like the only, the only badge is mother. Like that's Mm -hmm. what we all, that's what we all get to carry. And I think the further along you go in motherhood, the more humbling it is. Like you just Mm -hmm. realize that you're doing the best you can and sometimes you have no idea what you're doing and your children have their own personalities and their own they come into this world as persons as Mm -hmm. full people and you can do whatever you can to try to shape them and discipline them and nurture them and grow them but it's also they make their own choices and it's it's humbling to see that they may not accept everything that you Mm -hmm. give them. And there's a lot of releasing that has to take place and laying down of your own life and your own desires. And a lot of that happens through birth and birth Mm -hmm. is kind of a picture of what's going to be happening for the next, however many years your child is with you. It's a lot of letting go and a lot of breathing through things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We recorded an episode recently with um, a woman who, the way she phrased it is, you know, we have the birth that we need to become the mothers that we're meant to be. And I think, mm. like you just said, it's so true. Like birth is sort of this microcosm or this like little, you know, picture that kind of reflects like what the big picture of motherhood really is. And and it's it it just starts there. Like birth is just the beginning, you know, and, and it's, it's not even actually the beginning. There are so many things that come before that. But it's this mm-hmm. moment that is very important and and very seminal but it's just a moment and it's just a reflection of so much else that's going to come and going to happen so mary grace um i'd love to hear just a little bit more about you know what you do and um how you kind of bring that we talked a little bit more at the beginning of the show about how you know how you bring this this global perspective to your kids but I'd love for you to just share a little bit more with our listeners, kind of some of the ways that you do that with your kids, some, maybe some more specifics or even um, share a little bit about how it looks different with different kids. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, um, I, I have a little like PDF giveaway on my website that's called 10 Ways to Create a Global Home No Matter Where You Live. So you can go to the globalmom.com slash 10 ways and download that. And that really kind of just develops some of the easiest ways to bring global ideas into your home. And I'll just go through a couple of them now. But so one of them that I start with is just diversifying my own media. 
So making mm-hmm. sure that I'm taking in podcasts and music and news from around the world and that everyone in my podcast feed does not look exactly like me, mm-hmm. but that I have and that all the blogs that I follow are not from people that look at just like me or that have similar backgrounds, people I follow on Instagram, that everyone is not the same, that there is a lot of diversity and I'm seeking out people from diversity to get to know and talk with and learn from, Mm -hmm. trying to find multicultural books to read and really making that a point and choosing authors that are people of color or that are discussing different historical topics or, you know, things like that. So just not kind of not going with the flow, but really being intentional about what I'm taking in. And mm-hmm. I have just found that so enriching for myself that that's really where I start. And it gets me excited then to bring in things like maps and globes and into our house and point out um, when we're reading a book, pointing out places on the on the globe or the map and saying, where's that? And starting getting your kids talking about, well, they eat this way in that culture, and this is what they do over here. And, and, and being able to talk about that, like at, like at dinner or something like that, like one example that I give is, you know, if your kids are eating with their hands or something like that, instead of saying something like, we don't eat with our hands, that's not appropriate, you have right. to use a fork, you know, when they're old enough, obviously not when they're like a toddler or something, but, yeah. but when they're like five or six, and they should be eating with silverware, is I say saying things like, well, you know, in India, they eat with their hands. And in some cultures they do, but we're we in our culture right now, we're going to eat with a fork and a spoon. That's mm-hmm. what we do. And so instead of like put drawing lines in the sand and saying this is wrong and this is right, using words like in our culture, we do this. Mm-hmm. That really gives an awareness so that the kid will grow up knowing that other cultures do things different. Like in our culture, we shake hands. In other cultures, they bow or mm-hmm. they do namaste or something like that. And and we speak German, both my husband and I. So we try to speak it with our kids. Sometimes we have not been very intentional about that. And that's one thing I've been doing is gathering resources and trying to find things that we're going to do for that and really make that more of a learning process. And that's, that's another thing that kind of slid by us. I, I said to my husband like a couple months ago, like, why did we not commit to being bilingual with our kids from the beginning? And why, why did we not do this? And he was like, we were so overwhelmed with everything else. Give yourself a break. Like we could not yeah. figure that out. We were trying to figure out how to get our first child to sleep. And he was allergic to everything. And, you know, one of our kids has had epilepsy and like, we've had a lot going on. So you've got to give yourself a break on the bilingualness. Yeah. But But I think just exposing your kids to other languages and other foods and those types of things. So now, like my five-year-old, one night he was eating his rice with his hands and he's like, mom, I'm being an Indian boy tonight. I was Mm. like, okay, that's fine with me, you know, because you know what you're doing and you know that it's from a different culture. So, you know, you can also bring in crafts and games and the Multicultural Kid Blogs um, website has a lot of resources on there and a lot of different bloggers. If you go to their bloggers page, it can connect you with all sorts of people that are blogging about, you know, Muslim crafts and um, crafts for for Ramadan and crafts for Christmas and crafts for um, Easter and crafts for Hanukkah. And so you can use crafts to teach another language. You, I mean, another culture. You can use board games to teach another culture. But the main thing you have to do is you have to find those. You know, mm. if you're going to play a board game, just make it 
let's let's try to find a multicultural one. And I haven't completely done this in my house. I would say it's a process. And because a lot of things that you get for toys or gifts from other people are not going to have that as a value. Right. And, you know, when you go to the library at, at first, you're just picking out books that your kids like and Elephant and Piggy and, you know, Hungry Caterpillar and whatever. And those are fine. And we've, you know, we've Recently, we've read a lot of um, Little House on the Prairie books with my kids, and they love them. But that's not the end of the story. I mean, if I just do that, then my kids are not going to get the full multicultural perspective. And so um, looking up like Multicultural Children's Book Day is another great website, and they have tons of lists for diverse books. So books about Asian Pacific culture, books from um, different countries in Africa, books about Islam with kids, books about refugees. Um, Mm -hmm. books with, you know, mixed children with black Americans, historical books. So that's a really good resource. And I think, you know, just printing out some of those lists and taking them to the library and saying, okay, which of these do you have? Which do you have? Yeah. Yeah, And, and I've started doing that with my library about a year ago and getting our librarian, you know, listening to my podcast and, and that sort of thing. And she's, I think she's really changed and she's really said, okay, this, yeah, this is really important. And I'm going to start trying to incorporate this more in our library. And so, you know, even something as simple as that, if you're asking repeatedly for those kind of things, then maybe they're actually going to increase the, you know, the amount of those types of books that you have in your library. So those are some really simple ways. And like I said, there's more on my website and there's more on other websites of, easy ways that you can incorporate it into your life. Because for me, it has to be simple. I can't do like, um, you know, a 25 step plan to learning about another country because mm-hmm. I'm never going to do it. So it, it has to be something as simple as going to the library. And every time I see a book that has someone from a different country, I take that book home. Yeah. No matter yeah. if it looks interesting or not, I just grab it and we'll figure it out later if it's really a good one. Yeah. You just that incorporating into your regular routines in your regular life Mm -hmm. whether you know whether that's like you said going to the library or something that is you know something that you're already going to be doing to occupy your children (laughs) right yeah now if you live in a big city or you your kids go to a diverse school then I would say you know making a point to be friends with some of the other mothers in their classes or you know um, encourage some maybe a multicultural day at school or at preschool or learning about other cultures in that way, you know, something like that. Or it doesn't have to be if you go to a diverse school. I think it's important if you go to a non-diverse school as well. So just taking those opportunities and thinking outside the box of how can I make this a part of our of our lives. And because, I mean, I think it's important for the time and place that we live in and making those connections with people around the world and our kids this this world is going to be even more globalized so they're going to have more and more opportunities and they need to be prepared to know that their the way that they grew up with is not the only way and it's not the best way to do mm-hmm. things there's plenty of different ways and everyone has a story and everyone's story is worth hearing and listening to Well, that's, we love that. Um, We will share links to the PDF that you have on your website so people can check that out and some of these other resources that you're talking about Mm -hmm. as well, just so people can, you know, as I think many of our listeners will be, will be really excited about incorporating more of this into their rhythms and routines with their kids. So we'll make sure that they've got access to this stuff and of course also to your podcast so that they can check that out too. Great. Thank you so much. 
Yeah. Thanks for being on the show, Mary, uh, or Mary Grace. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners as we wrap up? No, I just appreciate what you guys are doing and just want to encourage people to kind of live their own version of motherhood and find out, you know, what values they have and what they really want to pass on to their kids. And that's really what I focus on and what I'm trying to focus on more and more. So I just encourage everyone to keep doing that. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth today. If you want to be a bigger part of our community, you can follow us on Instagram at motherbirth.co or connect with us on Facebook, where we have all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff going on. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate us in iTunes, which allows other people to find us and helps the show to grow. I think it goes without saying, but Mother Breast is a personal podcast created by Laura and Lisa. It's intended as general information. It doesn't constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care. If you're pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period.